Sanctus Church, so glad to be with you today to share God's word. So as we begin, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, come and restore, renew, and revive us. Jesus, we trust you and surrender our lives today. In your name we pray. Amen. If I gave you a four-piece puzzle, you probably would put it together quite quickly. If I gave you a 50-piece puzzle, you may take a little bit longer, but you'll do it. If I gave you a 500-piece puzzle, it'll be a little bit more complicated and more time-consuming. But now if I handed you a 5,000-piece puzzle, or maybe even a 500,000-piece puzzle, or 5,000,000-piece puzzle, you may refuse it. Even a 5,000,000-piece puzzle, you may outright flatly refuse to do it. Now, trying to figure out God and His plan and His ways is like putting together a 5,000,000,000 or greater-piece puzzle. There's just too many pieces. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So trying to figure out why God does things and how God does things will leave you more puzzled and more confused. Rest assured, God has revealed many things for us in, in His Word. There are also many things He hasn't revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of His law. So what God has revealed to us, we trust, we follow, and we obey. But what God hasn't revealed, we trust in our loving, sovereign God that He is working out all things toward His good. Now, we've come to the end of our Esther series, and I hope you have been uh, in this series, been renewed in your faith, have been caused to be confronted with new insights, and been challenged to do things you may have not done otherwise. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to any of the powerful sermons in this series, I want to encourage you to take time to go back and listen, or maybe re-listen to some of them. As mentioned in this series, Esther is a unique book because it is the only book in the Bible that does not mention the name of God directly. It is a book that reflects God's providence, His invisible hand that is working behind the scenes to bring about His purposes in history. So even though God is not discussed or acknowledged publicly, His fingerprints are found in every chapter of the book. So the providence of God, as we've looked and learned and studied, is his miraculous and often mysterious ways in which he interconnects and intersects people and events to bring about his desired plan and purposes. God's providence is also a subset of another important doctrine, which is God's sovereignty, which refers to God's absolute power to rule over his creation. Now, God uses the story of Esther to teach us something about himself that is very vital about our lives, and it is this, that there are times in our lives that it seems that God is not always present and he's nowhere to be found. He may be unresponsive and may even appear to be unloving and uncaring towards us because of the problems and pains that we experience. But regardless of how it may appear, God is sovereignly and providentially working in our lives and in creation for His ultimate good. So how do you and I handle times in life when we don't sense or feel God's presence or involvements? You know, we often express our love through flowers. We give people whom we love flowers, and sometimes flowers are determined to see if someone actually loves them. Now, you know this game that was sometimes played with certain people and you would take a petal of a flower and you would say something like, 
he or she loves me. And the next petal is he or she may love me not. And so you take this petal of the flower and you take, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. And when you come to the end, if it's she loves me not, you either conclude with that or you redo it, hoping for a desired outcome till you come to she loves me. And perhaps you've done something similar and with life, you've used the petals of, of life and the circumstances to determine whether God loves you or not. We do that with people today through our Instagram likes. For example, we look at a post if the person we admire or want likes that post and if they love us or paying attention. So we end up getting hooked to our likes and the follows on social media. And so we do it with our relationship with God. Instead of using the daisy petals, we use circumstances or feelings. And we reason things like this. If I get this job, God loves me. And if I get laid off or lose my job, God doesn't love me. If my child wins an award, God loves me. But if my child gets seriously sick, then God doesn't love me. If I prayed for something to come to pass, then God loves me. And if my prayers go unanswered, that means God doesn't love me. If I lose my patience and temper with someone, that means God is ashamed of me and no longer loves me. And if I successfully resist temptation, then God must love me. And if I yield to temptation and sin, surely God doesn't love me. We can often use our feelings as petals in our relationship with God. So we define God only in our limited interpretation of our own circumstances and feelings. We will never discover who he really is. Let me say that again. If we define God only in our limited interpretation of our own circumstances and feelings, we will never discover who he really is. Now, no one has to earn God's love. No one has to jump through hoops to earn his acceptance. No one has to crawl on their hands and knees to compensate for their past sins. No one has to do such things because God already loves us. Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, he says, God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we journey through the ups and downs of life, we must have our faith and hope anchored deep in God's love. Tim Keller writes this. He says, Christianity teaches that contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. And contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. So Christ offers us his love to anchor ourselves when going through the most painful circumstances of life. So now let's look at the ending of the book of Esther. We're here at Esther chapter 9 and 10. And in Esther 9, D-Day has arrived for the Jews. The day determined by Haman's decree to slaughter God's chosen people in the empire. But Mordecai, who along with Esther, exposed Haman and his evil plot to annihilate the Jews and gain favor from the king and change the D from destruction to deliverance. The Jews were no longer sitting targets but were given permission to actively engage, to resist and defend themselves. They were also given nine months to prepare for this day. The people who hated the Jews in the empire and hoped to destroy them were surprised to find, as it says in Esther 9.1, it says, the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those that hated them. The Jews were prepared. They were organized. They were armed and ready to confront anyone who would attack them and their families. 
In chapter 9, verse 2, it says, God gave them a greater weapon with so- with that, that were not swords and spears. It was the fear of the Jews fell upon them. The fear that God sent into the enemy's heart kept them from fighting his people. Now, do you remember when Jacob was traveling from Shechem to Bethel? Genesis 35, 5 says this, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were around them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. It was very similar when Israel entered the promised land in Deuteronomy 2, verse 25. It says, This day, God says, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations and under the whole heaven. In essence, the fear of the Jews was the favor of God. God's favor upon his people was their protection. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans 8, 31? It says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so today, I want to challenge you and encourage you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Now, though most of the people in the empire fear the Jews, there were still a large group of people who hated them and engaged in combat. Now, the Jews acted in self-defense and killed over 75,000 people, an average of 600 per province. The Jews were greatly outnumbered in the empire, and therefore their victory exhibited their courage and their faith in God. Now, there is an interesting detail the author highlights three times in this chapter. It's written that the Jews didn't take anything or any of the spoil of the people in verse 10, 15, and 16. Why is that significant? If you remember, Pastor John pointed out in a previous sermon that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites, a nation that King Saul was committed to utterly destroy. Instead of destroying that wicked nation, Saul allowed the king and some of the people to live and kept some of the spoils of the victory. The prophet Samuel was dismayed at King Saul's disobedience that ultimately cost him the kingdom. Now, Haman and his family were alive because Saul failed to obey God. And as a result, Esther and the Jews completed the mission by killing Haman and his family. The Jews remembered how Saul kept the spoil from his victory over the Amalekites and were careful not to repeat the same mistake. It was in taking the spoil from the enemy that King Saul lost his kingdom. You can read in 1 Samuel 15, 12 to 23. And the Jews, again, they didn't want to follow Saul's mistake. They were not after the wealth of their enemies. They only wanted to protect themselves. So it's important to note, the Jews only killed those who attacked them first. The Jews were not the aggressors. Now, from the concluding chapters in Esther, today's sermon, I'd like to focus on three important truths. First is, God is working behind the scenes in our lives. The second Celebrate and remember God's victory, as we're going to see in the Feast of Purim. And the third is, God is the God of reversal. He is the God of the great reversal in our lives. So let's look at these three uh, points. The first, God is working behind the scenes in our lives. Think of all the ways in the story of Esther, how God arranged and was working behind the scenes. God arranged special favor for Esther. God arranged Mordecai to have access to both Esther and the affairs of the kingdom. God arranged the, the, the lot that was cast to give 11 months warning before the evil event occurred. God arranged that the decree commanded that the Jews be killed by private hands instead of the army of Persia, which would have been far more difficult to stop. 
God arranged that Haman restrain his anger and not kill Mordecai immediately. God arranged uh, King Xerxes to have a sleepless night. God arranged King Xerxes to pick up the book in his sleepless night. God arranged Xerxes to read the passage about Mordecai in that particular book. It's amazing to see how God was working and finding and working behind the scenes on the events in Esther's life and how his providence and provision ultimately led to the saving of his people. This brings up a challenge that many of us have had between God's sovereignty and human choice. Are we just puppets and robots on the grand stage of life? Or do we actually have a choice? Now, God's hand working in history never excludes our actions and our choices. The actions of Esther and Mordecai were vital to saving of the Jewish people in Persia. God's will is always accomplished, yet humans are perfectly free agents, able to choose what they want. King Xerxes did as he pleased. Haman did as he pleased. Mordecai and Esther also did what they needed to do. There was no interference, no coercion, and no manipulation. They all did their will and bear the full responsibility of their actions. Yet within their actions, God worked out his eternal plan. There is tension. It's healthy and it's a mystery. The great preacher, teacher, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, there it is. Humans are free agents in what we do, responsible for our actions and verily guilty when we do wrong. We will be justly punished too. And if we be lost, the blame will rest with ourselves alone. But yet there is one who ruleth over all, who without complicity in our sin, makes even the actions of wicked people to subserve his holy and righteous purposes. Believe these true truths, and we will see them in practical agreement in our daily life, though we will not be able to devise a theory for harmonizing them on paper. And so you and I, we live with this tension, but also in trust. Trusting in God's providence does not exempt us from pain and trauma and hardship. It doesn't mean life will be easy. And sometimes at the end of, our, of certain events and lives, we can look back and we will see how all the dots connected and how the circumstances fit together. But sometimes it will remain a mystery. And we will have no idea why things happened the way they did. And sometimes certain tragic events may paint the picture of an unloving and uncaring God. But we have to trust that God is good. Trust is a confident hope anchored in God's promise that He will restore, renew, and recreate all that was lost, damaged, and destroyed. To show how this works, I'd like to just show a little demonstration I often like to visually show for us to visually and mentally comprehend God's truths. And so here in this demonstration, I have a cup that represents God's sovereignty, His providence. And when we live under His sovereignty and providence, as Peter writes, uh, submit and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And as we live in Christ, we have a certain comfort of His providence and protection. But there are many who choose not to live under, this, uh, under the sovereignty and the rule of God. And so it's like this piece of tissue. I have two here. One can represent those who live in Christ and, one who, and those who don't. And if I take this, this tissue and put it in the water, you see that the tissue becomes weak and fragile. And this is, represents those who, um, at the end, in eternity, 
won't receive uh, the renewal and recreation that God has promised because we just fall apart. But I'd like to show those who submit to God and live in Christ. If I take this, this cup and put it in the water, submerse it. And this, this water can speak about the trials, temptations, and the sins that we're confronted all in our lives. The challenges, the tragedies, the pain. But it doesn't mean we're exempted. You see, we, we live in that water. We, we function in this world that is full of sin and corruption and decay. But yet we live under the sovereignty and submission of God's purposes and will. And then in the final day of resurrection and hope, we see that we live renewed and recreated with hope, not damaged, destroyed, and soiled by the sin and the struggles of this world. And this tissue is completely dry and perfectly usable for our lives. And so I hope that demonstration helps you to grasp how we live under the sovereignty and submission and living in Christ. Now, the second point we mention is to remember and celebrate God's victories. It's important that we remember, reflect, and celebrate the providential events in our lives that have kept us alive and that have marked a turning point for us. This is why we regularly remember the death and resurrection of Jesus through communion. It's something we do to never forget the sacrifice of Jesus and the provision of the gift of eternal life for us. It's easy to forget or even for the next generation to forget and take for granted all the blessings that God has given to us. It's important for us as parents to instill into the lives of our children the events and markers and celebrations so our kids never forget what God has done in our lives and what God has done for our lives. So talk to them about these events. In Esther, the Jews established the Feast of Purim to remind their children and the generations following that God saved his people from destruction. Now, while Purim is not a, a Christian celebration, we certainly rejoice with our Jewish friends because every spiritual blessing we've received has come through the Jews. Now, there is nothing wrong with tradition because if we don't pass traditions on the stories and events to our children or our grandchildren about what God has done, the church will become complacent and will become ignorant and lifeless. It's when tradition gradually becomes traditionalism is that's when we get into trouble. Theologian Yaroslav Pelikan said this, he said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So we want to avoid living with dead faith, but rather live in the light and remembrance of the faith of the dead. Hebrews 12, one and two talks about how we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses of the life of faith. And so as we run this race, we have examples of faithful saints who passed on and are there to encourage us and give us hope that it is possible to live righteous, loving, and godly lives. Their examples are living memories for us to continue to press forward in our journey, in our faith, through all the obstacles and challenges of life. We have special days in the church calendar that are marked to remember what God has done in our lives and in history, like Advent and Christmas and Lent and Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, and so on. And maybe in our personal lives, we also have marked special days. We've, of course, marked birthdays and wedding anniversaries and graduations and special moments in our lives. 
So what days have you marked? What special remembrances in your life have you marked about what God has done, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the provision of God for you? Psalms 143 verse 5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I know in my life, I've marked some days that are very important, those life-changing moments, the spiritual experiences that have occurred in my life. And every year on these special days, I take time to reflect upon the goodness of God and make sure that I am renewed and I'm walking in His purposes and plans. So take a moment today and reflect on what God has done in your life. And have you marked those days in your calendar? What are the feasts of Purim for you and for me? The third and final point I'd like to highlight is God is the God of reversal. In Esther, you will find that even in the darkest and most difficult days, that God never stops working. He never sleeps and always keeps his promises to rescue his people. In Esther, we see how a young Jewish girl and her cousin Mordecai, against all odds, facing annihilation, ultimately ended on the side of the victor. The queen and the ruling magistrate, the one who lived in fear, were now being revered. Ultimately, the reversals found in the book of Esther point to us to the greatest reversal of all, the time when God used the death and resurrection of his only son, Jesus, to bring about the salvation, redemption, reconciliation, restoration, and renewal of all people and creation. And it is this great reversal that provides us hope in the middle of our pain that when we don't understand where God is or what God is doing in the world and in our lives, We have hope in this God of great reversals. In Genesis 3.15 says, God promises, he says in that verse, he promises that the serpent who strikes the heel of the seed of the woman would in turn have its head crushed. In the story of Esther, Haman's plan to strike and kill God's people backfired and ended up with his own demise and death. And on the cross, we see the horrific evil and the unleashing of the powers of darkness on Jesus was the way in which evil ultimately was overcome and defeated. God is the God of the ultimate irony. God is the God of the great reversal. God is the God of the great comeback story. You know, during the process of reversal, we have to trust that God never makes a mistake. It's easy for us to think so to look at our circumstances and to wonder why God is allowing something to happen in my life. I'm reminded of a poem that's a favorite of mine. You probably hear it in the future quoted very often. And it's uh, the poem title, He Maketh No uh, No Mistake by a man named A.M. Overturn, who wrote this poem when his wife died. He said this, my father's ways may twist and turn and my heart may throb and ache, but in my heart, I'm glad to know He never makes a mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead for he doth know the way. There's so much now I cannot see my eyesight far too dim, but come what may, I simply trust and leave it all to him. So today, will you trust that God does not make a mistake? We may make mistakes, take wrong turns, make ill-advised decisions and plans, but we still serve a God who forgives, restores, and who is able to take what the enemy has meant for evil and turn it for good. He's able to take our mistakes when repented of and work it out toward for good. 
You know, sometimes we quote from Romans 8, verse 28, that God works everything together for good. And we have it on our bookmarks and plaques on the wall. And it's a cherished and loved verse. But the good in that verse does not always mean what we think it should mean. Now, there is a difference between situational good and ultimate good. Situational good is what we often think of in this verse when it means good. Situational good is this short-term goodness. It's about making more money, being more healthier, succeeding in our endeavors, avoiding hardships and pain and trial. But the context of this verse is actually referring to ultimate good, how God is working through his spirit in creation to bring about and bring forth a new creation where his redeemed people, you and I, will be his children and will reflect his glory and his image. That one day on the day of resurrection, everything will be put right. I I love this verse, Revelation 21, 3 to 4 and 5. It says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death no more mourning, crying, or pain for the older things have passed away. And then it says this, I love this. He who seated on the throne said this, I am making everything new. So maybe your life is not situationally good now, but we rest in the ultimate confidence that the God of the great reversal is working everything out for our ultimate good. Part of trusting God is waiting. And very often we want things done instantly. Doors open, people healed, opportunities provided for, and obstacles removed. Lamentations 3, verse 25 and 26 says, says, The Lord is good to those that wait for Him. God often wants to do something in us before He does something for us and through us. Let me say that again. God often wants to do something in us before He does something for us or through us. And while he is working in us, he's purifying our motives and teaching us to trust and rely on him, protecting us from unseen danger, arranging circumstances and preparing us to impact others. Now, you may be going through a very difficult season. You may be stressed about a particular situation. You may be facing a trial at home or at work. But I want you to know God has a hidden opportunity in your opposition. So instead of focusing on the problem by living in fear and anxiety and self-doubt or even doubting God, start looking at the potential that God has placed before you. Look for that new thing. Look for that new opportunity. Look for God's new direction. You know, when David stood up before the ridicule of Goliath, he didn't see opposition. Everyone else saw opposition, not David. He saw opportunity. While the soldiers were cowering before the opposition, David was calculating the opportunity. Now, David didn't know at the time, but this was the opportunity that would catapult him to the throne of Israel. Goliath was not a setback. It was a setup for David, for David to reach the throne. So God can use your and mine oppositions and what the enemy has meant towards us to push us forward. God is the God of the reversal. He can reverse obstacles and oppositions and into open doors and opportunities. In the same way, God wants to do something deeper in your life and my life. He took the opposition before Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people and turned it around for opportunity. If your opposition is great today, be encouraged because God means, that means God has a great opportunity for you. 
There's so many stories of reversals in the Bible. We read about Abraham and Noah and Joseph and Moses and David, Peter and Paul. God can redirect mistakes that have been repented of for his glory. He can take what the enemy has meant for evil and turn it for good. You remember Joseph? Joseph's jealous brother sold him to slavery. But God raised him to a position of power and authority in Egypt that would ultimately save his family from death. In Genesis 50 verse 20, it says, Joseph told his brothers after confronting and showing himself to them, said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So just remember today, in every opposition, there is opportunity. God is the God of the great reversal. So remember these three truths. God is working behind the scenes of our lives. Remember to celebrate God's victories and moments and markers, the feasts, the days of celebration, remembering the goodness of God in our lives. And finally, to realize that God is the God of the great reversal. He's able to take, he's able to do whatever he wants to accomplish his ultimate good. So today you may need to find that opportunity in your opposition as you're facing, whether as an individual or family. I'd like to close with this, this personal story and hope it encourages you to see how God works behind the scenes, but also can take tragedy and turn it for good. About over 37 years ago, like Esther and Mordecai, my dad and mom had to make a decision to find opposition, uh, opportunity in opposition. I was born, as I mentioned before, in a small um, island of Sri Lanka. And some of you may know that in 1983, there was, it was the peak of an ethnic ongoing war. And our family was part of the ethnic minority. And my dad was a lieutenant commander of the Navy, which already caused a lot of tension being part of the minority working for the government. One day, my dad got wind of the impending danger and fighting that would occur uh, in the area that we were living in. And apparently the week before, the government uh, sent people from house to house to find out who was living in these specific homes and where the ethnic minorities lived. And so my dad got wind of it and sent a naval officer um, in time and contacted our, my mom and my brother and, and myself and, and our nanny who was there uh, by ourselves at that time and uh, was trying to get us out of the way. He was up in the north uh, part of the country engaged in conflict. My mom initially refused when the, the Navy soldier, uh, sailor came and said, you know, it's time to, to go. And the officer said he would return in 30 minutes. And so in that time, my mom packed a few things and we, we left with the officer. Minutes later, we found out a group of people came and through the neighborhood, killing people, burning things and destroying everything they could see. And I have a few pictures, as you can see here. Uh, of our house being burnt and our car burnt and flipped. And you can see even there my tricycle being destroyed. And all of our things were destroyed. And if we were there, we would have been burnt and killed to, uh, in that moment. We were fortunate to escape by minutes. Or we too would have been killed like neighbors around who were mutilated or viciously killed. It was purely God's mercy. And at that time, my father had to make a very hard decision for our family. He realized it was no longer safe for us to remain in the country. And so he decided that he wanted to take a leave, but he was not allowed to take leave by his commanding, uh, you know, the commander of the Navy and, and the government. And initially they first said he was allowed to leave after a year, but they refused. And so my father prayed and got counsel from others. And he made this hard decision to find opportunity in the midst of opposition. And so we had to migrate and we had to do it without anyone knowing. 
he had to desert the Navy and the country. We initially wanted to go to Australia. However, they needed security clearances from the Navy, and so that door was closed. And uh, he didn't want the Navy to know, because if it did, he would have been arrested. Fortunately, Canada understood our situation, and the Canadian government did everything, um, you know, quote-unquote, under the table without letting the Sri Lankan Navy and government know. And fortunately, my mom's sister was also here that was able to sponsor us uh, to Canada. When the day came, my parents didn't tell my brother and I that we were leaving because they didn't want to tell a five-year-old and a three-year-old we're getting on a plane and leaving somewhere lest we say something. And even at the ticket counter in the airport, my father's brother had to impersonate him and, and be there in, on be, his behalf because if they found out in any way, he would have been jailed. Fortunately, we were able to board the plane and arrive ultimately in Canada. Once the Navy found out, they were surprised that my father had left and they searched the country for him. And my father, because he was responsible for communication, the Navy was extremely scared and they assumed that he deserted over to the enemy side and therefore they had to change their entire communication codes. And more recently, I found out a, a year later that uh, my dad never even was able to call home to talk to his family in case that the phones were tapped uh, and put their lives in danger. And after a year, when he had finally got a chance to speak to family and to his own sister, they were just in tears. And then after hearing that story, I realized what it must have been for my parents to leave everything they'd known in the midst of such opposition and, and, and death to find opportunity for us as children. And so now when I look at our lives, it's amazing to see how God is the God of reversal, how he reversed that opposition to opportunity. He reversed our tragedy into triumph. I would not be standing here when you just stop and think about it, a little boy in a, in a country th thousands of miles away in a small little island, almost killed, is standing here before you because of God's providence, protection, and purpose to help and to teach God's word right now to you. And maybe today you're in the process of facing some opposition. I want to encourage you, Find God's opportunity. Will you trust God's sovereignty that he is with you and for you and he is leading you? Will you trust him for victory just like Mordecai and Esther? And so we have a God, a God of victory who can take what the enemy has meant for evil and turn it for good. And so as we conclude this Esther series and as we've seen in the story of Esther, God took what Haman the schemes of evil that was planned towards the Jewish people and turned it for good and promoted them to a place of power and position and that helped the Jewish people to continue to the ultimate goal of the restoration and renewal, which we will one day see, but through the birth of Jesus and the redemption of humanity, all because of God's sovereignty, providence, and provision in our lives. So may we find comfort and hope in that. As I conclude, I'd like to pray and something I'd like to do is that, would you join with me uh, with this prayer that is displayed and pray it together as a church, as a group of people trusting in God. Let's pray together. If you feel comfortable, please recite with me this prayer. God, we thank you for guiding and guarding, your guiding and guarding presence that at times we cannot feel, see, or understand. We trust in your love for us that one day you will make everything right and good. In Jesus' name, amen.